this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Diaz and Jay, this week we're back with another patron-selected album. Now, this one is a little unusual, Jay, because this was supposed to actually happen, like, I think in the beginning of the year. And our selector said, oh, no, I have a special album and I want to do it at this point in the year <laughs> to celebrate its 20th anniversary. Okay. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so the album that we're doing came out. 20 years ago, almost to the day of the release of this podcast. We're, we're real close, but it was September 1st, 1998. And I'm, I'm not going to give away what the record is, but I'll give away who our guests are because we have two guests, Jay. Well, you know that people are listening to the podcast could just read the title. <laughs> they could do what now? <laughs> they could just read the title of the they episode. What and know what yeah. Oh, I don't know if you know that. I didn't know there was or a look title. At the album cover. I thought these things were delivered uh, on on a piece of black vinyl in a, in a. I hate to pull back the curtain for you. In but. a white sleeve, and nobody knew what was happening until they actually <laughs> listened to this. Okay, that would actually be fun. We should do that. Do a vinyl episode. <laughs> yeah, I've had a couple. Uh, yeah, I have a bunch of ideas of like, like hide the identity of the records. Ooh, mystery episodes. There you go. Yeah, kind of fun. True. Dig me out. <laughs> Actually, we'll review the record, but we won't reveal what it is until the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah. That'd be interesting. <laughs> Let's talk guitar tone. I like, I like that challenge. <laughs> First of all, the man who picked this record, joining us from, I don't know where, the mountains of Washington, the streets of San Diego, the somewhere in the Midwest. I don't know where he is. He's a man about the country. Stephen Musinski, welcome back to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. I am currently in San Diego. There you go. Son of a bitch. Beautiful <laughs> San Diego. San Diego. Uh, and then also joining us because he really wanted to talk about this record and Stephen said, get this guy on. He wants to talk about this record. Coming back. Wasn't on too long ago. Do we call? Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm a huge fan of, of the band and the record and, uh, very excited to talk about which it. will not reveal until the end of the episode as we discussed nobody's gonna yes know. no St steven tell us the record that you picked it is none other than pack up the cats by local h and you chose this because we have failed to properly discuss local h on this show correct yeah that was a big part of it i mean i'm also just a huge fan of the album right um but yeah when i first found the podcast uh i remember cycling through the website and kind of seeing what you guys had done up until that point and a lot of a lot of boxes were ticked that i expected ticked except local h they were mysteriously left out of the bunch and then of course not there not long thereafter you guys had scott on for an interview which was cool um but still still needed to get that uh proper album review for the band <laughs> and that's the one celebrating the 20th anniversary it was released september 1st 1998 i'm going to start with this jay before reviewing this record had you ever listened to this all the way through no no i, I don't 
<clears throat> I think I prepped for the interview listening to the most recent record that was out during that time. But mm-hmm. uh, and I knew some of the songs here and there, but no, I'd never listened to the full record. Neither had I. So Jay and I are both uh, completely new to this record. I, I'd heard the singles, which were "All the Kids Are Right" and "All Right." Although I think "All the Kids Are All Are Right" are the is the one that actually had the video, from what I recall. And I remember seeing that, but I don't ever remember picking up the record or listening to it prior. And yeah, we we I think was it "Hey Killer" was the one, album that had just come out. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And I had listened to. Um, it's weird. I'm I'm in and out with this band because I really liked the solo record he did, Twelve Angry Months, which came out in the like mid two thousands, I think, somewhere in there. No, um, that that's a local H record. Um, oh, it probably, is. Unless you're thinking about the Married Men, which they released two records, two thousand. Oh, okay. 2012 but yeah the 2008 record 12 angry months was local H. okay i thought that was a solo record but yeah i i had listened to that one randomly i don't know why i i think i got it got a really good review on sound opinions was how i found that so i ended up checking it out and really liking it but it didn't cause me to go backwards and listen to the previous records so i'm glad we're now finally rectifying this oversight on our parts and (laughs) adding local h to the review canon or dig me out so this is the last record with the original drummer which is joe daniels um do you, either of you guys know i know there's contention between these two over the years um do you need to know like the history with regards to why this is the last record with him was it his him leaving was he fired by scott what's the backstory on that uh, do you want me to take that yeah. All right. Well, there's tons of different answers that have been given. Uh, essentially, what happened was Joe is just kind of growing tired being in the band. <clears throat> Back in 1999, um, the support from the label was not there. Um, they didn't really have a second single that was doing very well. Um, we can talk about the the merger between Polygram and Universal if you want, which is part of the reason why there was no support from the label. But their crowds were growing smaller and uh, Joe just really wasn't wasn't enjoying it anymore. And um, yeah, that's pretty much what happened. So I'm not sure if Scott asked him to leave or if he wanted to leave. I mean, from what I hear, he left. Um, uh, and that's pretty much it. So people have said that he went into real estate, which I think he did do after that at that point. But um, it was pretty much uh, agreed upon by both members that they were going their own separate ways that summer, summer of 99. Interesting. So yeah. I'll start with you, Dewey. When did you get this record? Did you get it when it came out? Or was it afterwards? I actually have a funny story about that. So um, these guys became my favorite band uh, back in 1996 or seven. Um, after I saw them open up for Gravity Kills, they were just they blew me away. And uh, they played a place called the Asylum in Toledo, mm-hmm. which you probably remember being yep. BG. And oh yeah. The, the bill was, uh, there was a band called Chainsuck that opened up the show. I really didn't enjoy them very much. Uh, Wait, H- did you just say Chainsuck? Yeah, do you remember that band? No, but that is the worst band name I've ever yeah, heard in my life. They've sounded, <laughs> uh, they've sounded like. But, so yeah, they were the first band, and then Local H was on second. And uh, I remember they opened up with a song called I Saw What You Didn't Know Who You Are off of the then album As Good As Dead. And I was pretty much locked into their show from that point. And 
went out and got their uh, two albums the next day. But uh, yeah, from that point on, I was really heavily into the band. So by the time this record came out, I was pretty much anticipating it every day, all the way up until September 1st of that year, just waiting for it, you know. And uh, back in 1998, I worked at Kmart because I was, let's see, I would have been 17 at the time. So I was working at Kmart in the photo department, which I have some funny stories about that, but that's for a different podcast. Uh, <laughs> that's and, for our Kmart photo department podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that day they actually released a two CD special edition at Best Buy, where if you bought it at Best Buy, you would get a CD with the two bonus songs. And uh, for me, that was a big deal because it was my favorite band and I was freaking out that they were going to sell out. And, you know, so I, I had my friend Chris uh, actually go to Best Buy at 9 a.m. and get me pack up the cats when it came out. And uh, true story, he brought it over to Kmart on my lunch break and we jammed it in the parking lot for my lunch. Classic. In his 86 Mustang. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I still, yeah, I still remember that like, awesome. because it was such a I had a smile on my face like a mile long. It was just one of the greatest because it was my it's your kid. It's your favorite band. It's a new record. It was just a great day, you know. And uh, yeah, so that's that's my history with it. Jamming a new record in a 80s or 90s yeah. sports car <laughs> will right. never not be awesome. Right. And it was it was on CD. So, I, right. Was it the yeah, CD? Yeah. Or yeah. He he put a CD player in his car. This was nineteen seventy. So he had put a in dash CD player in there. Oh but yeah. Nice, nice yeah. aftermarket system. Yeah, we were just out of high school, so we had you know he had an eighty six <laughs> Mustang that was just pretty much staying together you know at that point and um, yeah we had yeah, it on we had it on pretty loud. All the shoppers kept looking over at us you know when they were coming yeah. out. <clears throat> All right. So these are the top three cars to jam out to a new. CD in the 1980s or 90s. Number one is a 1980s Mustang. Number two is a 1980s IROC Camaro, preferably with T-tops. And number three is a Fiero GT. Now you got to get the GT because you got the spoiler on the back. That's oh, key. I don't know, man. I was going to throw in a wild card for number three. What was three? The Chevy Beretta. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be a Beretta GT, though. Those were the perfect, like... Yeah, I can't afford a Camaro. I got the Beretta, <laughs> and it's a hand-me-down with the B-pillar uh, door handle. Yep. Excellent. All right, Stephen, the man who suggested this record. How did you come about this record? Was it similar? Did you get it the day it came out? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, in similar fashion to uh, when I talked about uh, Silver Chairs Free Show, definitely rode my bike to the same record store. Uh, Went there with an with a disc man empty so that I could put the CD in there when I got it. Ooh, wow. Um, Prepared. My bike back, listening to that bad boy. Uh, and yeah, so like a, a lot like Dewey, you know, I discovered the band somewhere between uh, the second album and, and this album. And so it would be the first new release that I would get the, you know, the luxury of anticipating. Um, and I was pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that the record store had uh, promotional posters up in advance. Uh, of which I convinced them to let me have one of, and you know, put it on my, <laughs> put it on my closet door, and uh, yeah. So yeah, in very similar fashion, uh, was was very excited and ready and waiting for this one. Nice. Jay also on that list is an Eagle Talon. <laughs> yeah, that was I good. actually had one of those cards. Uh, of course you did. Yes, yeah. that's why you're on the show. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody is selling an Eagle Talon, uh, just so shoot us an email. I'd like to pick one up. 
<laughs> that was the uh, the sister car to the was it the Chrysler 300? It was a sister car to a Chrysler. No, it was it wasn't the 300, but it was it was the exact same. It was a rebadged Chrysler. Wasn't, that the Eclipse? Yeah. wasn't it like the Mitsubishi Eclipse or something? I'm trying to remember. Uh, might have been. Yeah, might have been the Eclipse, which was which was all out of the same like Chrysler family. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh man, the 90s were terrible for cars. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the shittiest cars ever made were made in the nineties. Yep. <laughs> every girl, every girl that I went to school with drove a neon. So it was like neons everywhere back in the Oh day. God, I forgot about those. Yeah. And and the probes, Ford probes. Yeah. Yeah. And you do not see those ever on the like you see old cars on the road. Those are two cars that you never see on the road. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You never see a probe these days. <laughs> right. Shockingly, like, somehow still see Aero Stars though. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Old, those old minivans, yep, those hold up. Mm-hmm. Crown right. Vicks, see a lot of those. So some of our folks over at patreon.com forward slash dig me out, they had some comments on this record that we should talk about before we actually get into this record. So Roger, one of our new patrons, he said, uh, like you guys, Local H's uh, As Good As Dead was the first CD I bought myself. So that... That's even that bigger, uh, wow. not just not just that he was his first local HCD, but that was the first C he bought on his own. Um, they've held a special place in my heart since the album has good songs, but I hardly ever listen to it. It's just too all over the place. If you guys are, well, then he talks about if you guys aren't aware of the drama going on, look into this. The original drummer, Joe Daniels, is threatening legal action. If Scott Lucas releases any demos for the 20th anniversary, Joe's poster on Facebook under local H original. And uh, so I didn't know about that, that there was apparently pending legal action. If any more demos from this album Hmm. get released, that's uh, yeah. Essentially both members have released the demos for free. Um, Scott put up some YouTube links and Joe put up a couple links on his Facebook page. So I think that's pretty much how they're going to be, how they're going to settle it. So Uh, there's not official release of demos and there shouldn't be any issues. Whitney Beeler said, this album became a favorite of mine way after it was released. Like most most others, I was all over As Good As Dead when it came out, but then wrongly forgot about Local H. I rediscovered them a few years back, and Pack Up The Cats really smacked me upside the head. I love the opening five or six songs and the way they seamlessly flow into each other. Later tracks Cool Magnet and Laminate Man keep the tuneful noise going. Uh, Matthew Barnes said, this is one of those rare bands that are incapable of releasing a bad record. I was lucky enough to see them perform this record front to back on their 2010 tour where they had someone from the audience pick out an album from a hat to perform live. Is that true? Did they do that? Yeah, that was a genius idea for a tour because at that point they had six records out and uh, they would literally put all six records in a hat on pieces of paper and they would let somebody in the crowd pick it. And then they would play it on the spot. It was genius. It was great. You know, you wow. didn't know what you, what, what you were getting when you walked in. So it just made it very exciting. What year was that? Uh, it was 2010. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And was, a, a big I, reason, a big reason why they were able to do that was because they did a really awesome thing in 2008. Was it Dewey? Yeah. Uh, for the release of the record you mentioned earlier, Tim, they did uh, 12 angry months leading up to the release. They played six nights in a row in Chicago, they did a what they called a seven-night stand at the, the Beat Kitchen in Chicago. And they played each album in its entirety, in chronological order, 
Um, and then on the sixth night, they did B-sides and rarities. And then on the seventh night, which was a Tuesday, back when albums were still released on a Tuesday, they played the brand new record front to back. Yeah. To celebrate its so to celebrate its release. So the the catalog, you know, they spent a lot of time obviously rehearsing the entire catalog and having that under their belts. And so then, yeah, they were able to able to go out and do the Six Angry Records tour. He also mentions Matthew that is that Scott uh, or that uh, the uh, band working with Ken Andrews and that they have a new track. I have not heard that yet. Have you guys heard that? Yeah, so um, they recorded that, uh, I want to say, two two years ago, actually. And uh, Scott's done a couple interviews you can look up on YouTube, but essentially that was supposed to be a part of an EP that never came to be. And they just kind of had the song sitting there that they recorded with Ken uh, in his studio out in L.A., I believe. And they decided just to release it before the Summerland tour this year to kind of put something out. And uh, they ended up making an incredible video for it. Uh, that they just put out so if anybody's listening i highly recommend checking out the video they did a really good job on it michael shannon stars in it actually the uh the actor they got him to, to be in the video so yeah that's the story but i don't think there's going to be any more material recorded with ken at least anytime soon that uh, i've heard of. yeah unfortunately uh gary moran says local h is still going strong after all these years really underrated this album is the first where they really let their rock influences shine not a bad song in the bunch we can get into influences and whatnot a little bit later. I think that'll probably come up. Peter Matheson says this is definitely this definitely has some of their strongest moments. All right, fine and good. All the kids are all right. Lucky time, etc. Their subsequent there are subsequent local H albums I like as much, but they lost something for sure once Joe Daniels left. Interesting. Uh, Andrew O.C. says I remember going to Best Buy the day this album came out to score an extra disc. Which, hey, it's like me. <laughs> there you go. In which they covered ACDC's It's a Long Way to the Top If You Want to Rock and Roll. Absolutely killed it. The whole album is highlights, but if you search hard enough online, check out Summer Movies, a B-side that didn't make the cut, but is worth a listen. Island Records really dropped the ball from not promoting this well. And uh, Frank Garcia Hell says, I got the Best Buy release for the same reason. Apparently... A lot of people who listen to this podcast went to Best Buy on September 1st, 1998. Hey, that was the best. Around this country. I bought so many CDs there back in the 90s. You have no idea. (laughs) Now I have no reason to go to Best Buy anymore. Absolutely no reason. Did you get upsold into a washer or dryer while you were there or perhaps a new television? (laughs) Got to buy the protection plan. Because that that was their hope is that you would buy their cheap CDs and then also accidentally stumble into a new refrigerator. (laughs) (laughs) that that was the plan uh and then whitney also said oh boy i just found out local h is playing in november here in minneapolis i need to be there yes you do whitney i think they're playing here in columbus yeah yeah they're playing a and r bar they haven't but they haven't played here in five years so i'm really happy is that also in november uh no it's september 13th they're playing here so pretty soon okay yeah and then uh Frank Garcia Hell said, one of the best live bands, hands down. They consistently release solid albums. This is one of my favorite of theirs. Fun theme, catchy tracks with slick production that didn't take too much away from their sound. My favorite track is probably What Can I Tell You? As an STP fan at the time, I was stoked Dean DeLeo played guitar on Cool Magnet. I also think this album has a very special place in my heart because I remember sneaking out of the house to see them play 
on this tour, I got caught, but it was totally <laughs> worth it. <laughs> and then he said, side note, not the best album to play if you have cats. The cat samples drove my cats crazy. That's true. Um, so I tested that, and my cat did not react. So I oh, guess this re- is on a cat-by-cat basis. <laughs> All right, let's get into this record. Let's talk about I, I Jay and I will obviously get into uh, our initial impressions and then we'll get into some, to some stuff with you guys. So, Jay, let me ask you, first time checking out this record, what did you think? Yes, what sir. did you like? I I was impressed by how well put together it was. I wasn't expecting that. Um I was expecting I don't know, a typical approach to a nineties alternative record in terms of, um, you know, put your single two, three, um, have some meandering things, have some issues with sequencing, have a couple good songs here and there. Maybe it's strong, starts strong up front, but, and then Peter's off at the end. I, I, I was impressed by how well thought out this all seemed to be, mm-hmm. um, the sequencing, how the songs transition, um, where they put some of the, I guess um, maybe unexpected material. Um, the you know the overall length uh, is actually um, we'll talk about it a little bit more, but um, I, I think I'm okay with it. Um, I, I did. I guess I, my biggest takeaway was from a positive standpoint. I guess I didn't expect it to work as well as an album as it does. In fact, I don't know if I would like it as much if I just listened to a song here or there. Um, yeah, I, I felt like I was appreciating it as an album, which we don't frequently say. I think we, even though we have worthy albums, uh, we tend to focus more on pieces and parts that we really love, and then other parts that are pretty good. Um, this, um, if you go song by song, maybe you know you can definitely be critical, but there's something about the way it all comes together that seems like a cohesive statement. I don't know, maybe even concept album-ish in, in some aspect. So uh, I think I was most taken by that. That was the thing that stood out to me that it was unexpected and that I was pretty impressed with. Let me ask, because you brought it up, Jay, uh, Steven and Dewey. Is this a concept album? Frank brought up that there being a theme to this record, and I know has, that Scott has written around themes and concepts. You know, I mentioned the 12 Angry Months. That's obviously there's a concept to that record. Um, I know that there's some material that sort of links together on this record, but is this a straight up concept record with a singular theme running through it? Or is this more a, uh, you know, there's some things here and there that are sort of connected, but it's not overall like, you know, it's thought out piece by piece concept record. Um, real quick. I'm, I'm on, do, I want to hear Dewey's thoughts on this too, but I mean, yes, to quote Scott, he does call it a concept record about a shitty mid-level band. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that's true. I mean, essentially what, what happened at the time was they had, uh, they had some money. They had some major label support at the time, and um, they really wanted to swing for the fences and do something big. you know. And uh, at the time, when As Good As Dead came out, that's pretty much not all, not all the songs, but a lot, of, a lot of the stuff on that record is about being stuck in a dead-end town. And uh, this pack up the cats idea was getting out of that town and, and moving to the big city. 
and uh, what what happens to your band once you kind of get known. And, you know, there's a, a lot of the lyrics involve partying. And if you know, partying is a lot of comes up in a lot of the songs on this record. And there's uh, all the kids are right you know, about kids turning on you at the show and not enjoying the show and just kind of that's pretty much tells a story of, of a band kind of coming to fame and then having fame kind of come back on them a little bit. So yeah, it's definitely conceptual for sure. Okay. So interesting. See, I think that Jay, you mentioned it about working as a record. I think what this specifically works as is a CD. I think mm. that there are rare instances in the nineties of concept records and, you know, complete albums working within the CD format where yep. you don't get burnt out. Yep. And this one does, you know, it was mentioned in the comments about the first five or six songs. I think Whitney, Whitney might've mentioned it sort of running together in this, in this really like nice flow. And I definitely picked that up. I mean, I think the thing that I've grown to appreciate with Scott Lucas in, in terms of our interview with him and, and revisiting various records is his talent, not only as a songwriter, but as an arranger, of the music in terms of putting things together so that there's more than just a bunch of rock songs, but actually putting some more thought into it. And it's a really interesting and fun record in that regard, because, you know, you can, you can put this on and it, there's a lot of variance in the, in the songwriting and you get a lot of cool different sounds and, and, you know, on some of the songs, the the guitar tone is like heavy, and then it gets real heavy on some other to- other songs. And I I liked that variety, but I also liked how it all kind of flowed really well and takes you on this journey in a you know it's it's forty seven minutes, which I get for like a seventies concept record would be long, but for a nineties album that doesn't exploit the full seventy seven minutes or whatever. You know, they had another half hour to play with that they could have done. And yeah. thank God they didn't because it really kind of <laughs> works in this nice, tight, condensed, you know, it's 15 songs, but to be truthful, you've got, what is it? It's, four a, it's songs 11 under, songs. Yeah, I feel like it's 11, 11 songs. It's with really, four, yeah. Four interlude style tracks, you want, if you want to call them. Right. If this was a failure album, those would be called the segue tracks. Right. <laughs> yes. Essentially. So yeah, it's really it's eleven songs, and um, it works really well. And I think one of the things that also, uh, you know, helping it work well is that it sounds really amazing. And they did have Roy Thomas Baker produce this, so you know you get the guy who works on you know uh, a number of Queen records, who works with uh, the Cars, yeah, the Cars, Alice Cooper. Cheap Trick, Devo, Motley right. Crue. I think, I I think mean, he did the first Motley Crue record, Too Fast for Love. Yep. Which, I mean, he's got is, an amazing Ozzy. Did No Rush for the Wicked. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, so he's got a, a pretty freaking good uh, catalog that he's that he's coming from. So when you know you talk about how well this works, it also sounds really good. At least. You know, from to my ears, it it plays a weird trick because, and I'm maybe I'm wrong, but I know that there's no bass player in this band, but yet I'm hearing low notes, and I believe that's the way that Scott just strings and tunes his guitar. Right? He's actually like 
playing heavier gauge strings for his bass for his lower strings and then his his setup is super unique um but i'm pretty sure when it comes to studio work that he tracks bass oh he does can you confirm that dewey he definitely does yeah yeah but live yeah live he has a guitar that has two pickups essentially with two inputs one is a bass pickup and one is a guitar pickup uh, and he runs the the bass pickup through a bass amp and through an octave pedal. Um, so he in through he uses three tuners so he can mute, you know, certain amps at certain times. He he can get a full on bass tone uh, out of his guitar in a live setting. It seems like a lot of work when he could just have a guy play bass. Right, right. I don't get that. I don't get it. Like because you, I mean, I get the aesthetic on the record in that that's very synced up, but you can definitely tell it's a different track why go through all that for the live show why not just have a bass player well i think i think it kind of stems back to 1993 i think is when their bassist left um they had a bassist named matt who left the band and they were kind of stuck and at the time uh, labels were looking at them and they really didn't have any time to find a bassist so scott had a friend that was like hey let me mod up your guitar let's try it and it worked and he's just kind of stuck with it all this time so yeah and they've had basses play with them uh johnny polanski who we talked about before we started recording played bass on a few songs when he toured with them and they've had basses over the years especially for um songs that actually require bass live that they don't really play much as a two-piece yeah uh, it definitely makes it sound better but yeah for the most part they he stuck with that the entire time and it's worked and they're very unique for doing that so you know I guess I was surprised by the amount of multi-tracking and how important it was to the record too, knowing what the setup of the band was, you know, we interviewed Scott, so we kind of got the gist of, of that, but going into it, I I think I was expecting a a simpler sound sometimes. And yes, they can be very simple. um, But there are some critical, you know, guitar overdubs on this record that really make the songs like take them to a whole other place um, I wasn't expecting that. And I, I enjoyed that quite a bit, but it, I do find myself like, instead of really enjoying it maybe as much as I could, it makes me start to wonder like, well, how did they do this live? And why isn't this just the format of the band? And this part is super important. And if you can't do this, like I just get lost in the minutia of like <laughs> the idea of the band, as opposed to just enjoying the record sometimes. Yeah. Uh, this, this record, this album, uh, did kick off, um, a lot like several year period where they would start taking a third person on the road with them. And the first one they took was uh West kid from triple fast action. Okay. Um, so to do, to do the big support tour for this West went out with them and did vocal harmonies and guitar solos and, and second guitar parts. And, you know, he would kind of come on and off stage uh, as needed, but um, yeah, they did do that for this, for this record. And and then, yeah, they would start taking out different people. Like we mentioned Johnny Polanski earlier. Uh, I don't know that guy's name from the Cupcakes, but they took him too. Oh, that's Greg Saran. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, they actually continued with the touring guitarist. They used a touring guitarist from the Pack Up the Cats tour all the way through 2003. Um, and then in 2004, they went back to the two-piece, just just Scott and Brian at the time. But mm. Yeah. But the pack up the cat stuff needed a second guitar. I mean, when they toured this record, they I can see why Scott wanted to get somebody else up there with him because it's just there's too much going on. Well, yeah, I mean, even the first track, there's a critical second guitar part, right? That's a counter melody. 
so I mean, you kind of got to have that. It's a cool part, but you got to have that live, or else it's you're going to really be missing something. And it's it's predating having uh, the the loop pedals, where I'm sure you could <laughs> you could figure out a way to do that now, where you could just put it into a loop pedal and have your uh, you know your loop play one of the parts. But uh, yeah, it didn't exist back in well, at least I don't think they existed back in. 1998 or 99 when they would have been touring this record so kind of have to do that here we go back again extra brass when I come in it's only me it's Jay, what, let me ask you, what, in terms of working, what are some of the standout tracks for you? Well, another thing I want to add, I just want to say from a working standpoint is uh, I think the drums save a lot of this record for me. Um, I'm going to go back to the Verbena review we did recently, and I got on the soapbox about how I didn't agree with that record just being completely dismissed and not even, you know, listen to because it was compared to nirvana um he's he can sound a lot like Kurt cobain like vocally and songwriting standpoint some of these guitar riffs are very nirvana-esque even some of the vocal production and the thing that i think separates them um is the drums i think the drum approach on this record is not dave Grohl-esque. it's big but it's a different style it's more yeah. At times it can be a little bit more metal. At other times it can actually be a little bit more pop. Like he does a great job doing like really simple, big sounding like Tom beats and stuff that create a really great like uh, you know kind of pop energy um, behind the some of these tracks. But just the overall playing is is non Nirvana esque, and I think that's what separates it from being too much like Nirvana sometimes. Um, so I just wanted to call that out in terms of. Um, I enjoyed the drumming quite a bit. Um, I think he's adding quite a, uh, quite a lot to the to the songs here. Um, in terms of songs, I liked a lot. Um, Hit the skids to me is where the record really starts to take off, and I'm pretty solid through most of the rest of it. So, what can I tell you? Finding good, cool magnet. Um, I like that in that you you get more of a groove orientation to the band. They almost turn into like a, a Stoner metal band yeah, it was on that very track. Fu Manchu on that song. Yeah.
I love the like the stony that little interlude. You get these nice pieces of acoustic uh, tracks or you know kind of chiming guitars, and you get it out of the fuzz a little bit. But then they come back hard with a song like Laminate Man, which plays with production. You know, you get some panning, extreme panning going on, but it's super poppy. It almost sounds like an STP song, like a middle era STP song. All the kids are right. I mean, that's just really well written. Um, and I think it shows off his ability to arrange. Um, it also sounds like very like late 90s Midwesterny to me. I don't know. I just think of Watershed and a lot of bands that kind of sounded like <laughs> this at that time. And Lucky Time, I like a lot too. So those, are, those are my standouts. Yeah, Laminate Man, I just want to go back to that one real quick. I love the use of the piano in that song. Yep. It's real simple and it's it just adds that one little extra flavor that like makes you want to go back and listen to it again. Like, oh, that was interesting. I also like the way I like he that he sings a little bit different in that song. have a lot of complaints about this record but the one thing that like i noticed and listened to repeatedly is that there are times where you get the like sort of yelling and um the angry scott and it gets a little bit repetitive Mm -hmm. and i think maybe that's the reason why i haven't connected with this band as well as some of their peers in terms of you know '90s sort of louder guitar rock bands, is um, I like I mean I like his voice when he's doing different things, but when he locks into that one particular sort of um, I don't know what it is. It's it's just it just kind of gets on my uh, nerves a little bit, and I I kind of find myself like wanting to get to either the the more mellower songs. Or songs where he sing a little bit like breathier. Um, I guess it's what happened with. I mean, Billy Corgan's the same way. You kind of get there's certain like Billy Corgan styles that can get can wear on you real fast. And unfortunately, that's basically his entire style for the last <laughs> fifteen years. Basically, since Machina, he's been doing the same sort of, you know, the snarling well, Billy. There was some of that on Melancholy, though, like. What was it? Bo- was it Jelly Belly or Bodies? Some of those songs are really heavy with the way he sung those. That's right. why. Yeah. But, but then you get songs like Beautiful or, you, you know, there's there's a good counterbalance to that where I don't feel like he's not just into a Billy Corgan discussion, but he doesn't he doesn't counterbalance that singing anymore as much as he used to. Because um, you go back and listen to Gish and it's like it's all like that. It's all very breathy and you know, sing, sing in a higher register and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So um, I understand voices change. 
uh, you know, you get comfortable with a certain style maybe and it makes it easier to sing that way. Anyway, with Scott, it's it's never it's never to a point where I like want to turn it off. It's just that I maybe I wish there was a little bit more of stuff like Laminate Man uh, yeah. with, in terms of the, the vocal style. Just because I think it's cool and it's, it's different. And I always d- appreciate some diversity in that sense. Yeah. Like Deep Cut to me is a good example of the most stereotypical. I mean, it's almost, I, I guess that's maybe the concept of the song, but <laughs> by being called Deep Cut. Um, <laughs> but uh, to me, that when you describe that angsty kind of predictable sound that's that's right. the song that i think best characterizes that it's just in that song it's just sort of like yelling at the same note for mm. for long periods of time and it doesn't like it just needed to change a little bit i don't know where i went my brain is a I mean, he does some of that in other songs, but there's more fluctuation in the melody. And I think that that's what maybe works better for me is when there's a bit more diverse. It's why I sound like all the kids are right works so well, both from an arrangement and then also from a um, a vocal standpoint, because he's able to do that sort of style. But it's broken up by the, the way that the song is structured and it, it doesn't uh, get repetitive in that way. I was impressed with the like the range he sings with on the record. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there is a lot of different shades to his voice here that I didn't expect. You know, there's a couple acoustic moments that are uh, surprising. Um, he can be very, very melodic, but he he can also do the angsty kind of scream. Um, so I, I think overall, I was another area I was surprised in is just the amount of vocal uh, ra- the vocal range and styles that he that he brought to the record. So, gentlemen, we have we have discussed a little bit of our our thoughts on this. We know that you guys both love this record, so I'm not going to tell you anything. I'm not I'm not going to ask you, you know, what works and what doesn't work. What I would ask you is more along the lines of: Are there has there been fluctuations over the years of which particular songs you've gravitated towards? Have have your favorites changed from when you first got it to maybe more recently that sort of thing um in terms of listening to it over the years and gravitating towards certain songs Dewey, you want to go first uh okay well um i don't know i mean i i've been constantly constantly listening to this for 20 years um i mean i don't listen to it every month or anything but i do listen to it at least a few times a year at least in recent years um obviously in the late 90s i probably listen to it every week um but as the years go on i still break it out every year and i i wouldn't say that any songs jump out at me um i mean i've always really admired lucky time uh just from a songwriting perspective, I, I thought he just did an incredible job on that song. And it's always been one of my favorite Local H songs. And it's always been one of my favorite album closers of any album. I just think it just ends on such a great note. 
slide at the end of that song. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's just a great song. And I remember when I first heard that uh, back in 98, um, after seeing them live a few times, I was like, oh, there's such, there's another side to this guy, you know, that, that pack up the cats to show me a different side of local H that I didn't know was there. And um, that's just always what I remember the most about pack up the cats. But I really don't think any songs have really changed to me over the years, um, just because it's always been in constant rotation. And I, I just really don't have any songs like that. How about you, Stephen? Have you had any? Well, for me, when I first heard this thing, I certainly gravitated more toward, you know, the, the rockers, um, you know, like Jay pointed out, Deep Cut, like, you know, that song was right up Teenage Steve's alley. Like, oh, yeah, sure. Distortion, simple riff, rocking. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't really have the capacity to understand the full scope of this record and the new sides that were coming out of the band. And I do remember the first few listens definitely being a little surprised by it because it wasn't so angsty all the way through. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, this has aged really well for me, um, especially the production and all of the like rich layers and textures and stuff that I just didn't really, Back then, I didn't have the capacity to understand or appreciate those things, and and so yeah, this this thing is has aged so well for me uh, over the years. And then like learning about Roy Thomas Baker, like I didn't know or care who produced the record. I don't even know what that meant uh, when, <laughs> when I got my when I got my hands on it. Uh, so like yeah, coming to learn all of those things and and um, and truly being able to appreciate it um, for for being a complete album. And, and like the the conceptual uh, angle of it, yeah, I don't know. Over the years, um, you know, I've I've gone from appreciating songs, you know, I've gotten away from uh, just focusing on on the hard rockers. Um, and and actually, as I listened to this to prepare for this, I was taking notes and and remembering what some of my first favorites were, and then thinking about you know how that's kind of changed and evolved over time. Um, but the one thing that hasn't changed. Is is what can I tell you? I just think that that song kicks so much ass, and it has some of my favorite vocal harmonies that Scott has ever pulled off uh, in the studio. Like and, and, Joe, and Joe sounds incredible on that song. That's one. Of my yeah, that that drum roll in the middle of the song, like the way it goes in, like the way five five hundred thousand Scoville sets it up, and the way that they slam into that thing, and then that like that one particular harmony near the end where everything cuts out and it's just vocals. And I don't know if that's like a triple layer harmony. Like there's, it's so thick and I just love it. And I always have. Yeah. The great thing about those songs is when they play those live, they generally play them together. So if you ever hear them play, well, I should say the first tour is an exception because when they toured this record, they did uh, 500,000 Scovilles, but they actually did it in the back in the day, which was off the previous record, which confused me when I saw them play it live because I'm like, oh, they're going to do What Can I Tell You? 
And uh, no, they didn't. They did back in the day. But every tour after that, they started. Anytime you would hear five hundred thousand, you were pretty much getting "What Can I Tell You," which was really cool because when they started the drums and Scovilles, you're like, "All right, this is you know." That's always been one of my favorite, uh, you know, segues of, of any of their records is hearing those two together. And the same goes for "She Hates My Job," uh, "Stony Laminate Man." I mean, those are just they always play those together just because they kind of go together, you know. So yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I was it's pretty pretty seamless. Yeah. I love when bands do that. Like you know, you, you hear "Heartbreaker" by Led Zeppelin. You know, "Living Loving Maids" coming up next. I mean, it's just or you hear <laughs> "Eruption." They're gonna play. You know, you really got, got me. me. There's I love when there's bands that have those sort of combinations of of songs. You know, they they run together. And you know, you mentioned Jay earlier. Hit the skids. I think that to me is you mentioned about being like where the album sort of hits the stride sort of the fact that they can take like a two chord riff and make it that cool and interesting. Whereas so many bands would try to do two chords and sort of not pull it off just shows like how, what interesting stuff that he's doing with outside of the guitar parts and what they're doing as a band and the tones and all that, all the stuff that goes into the song besides just the two chords. Yeah. I think it's, it's a, it's an interesting study in how much you can do with a simple concept. I mean, this band has pretty much been the same concept on every record, right? I mean, yeah. the aesthetic, the approach, the idea, but how much you can push and pull that and create different things that are very cohesive, but also have enough variety that you don't just get, it doesn't become mundane. Yeah, Hit the Skids was definitely an early favorite when I first heard it because it's so catchy and the riff is just... It just sucks you in, and then the towards the end of the song, or is it the middle of the song, that he just—it's just Scott playing the riff, and then Joe comes in so heavy, uh, and then it, and then it's it's it just it was one of my early favorites just from hearing that riff. I mean, it just it just sucks you in, and but from that point on, I mean, the first three songs, All Right Oh Yeah is an okay song. I've, this is my favorite band, but I, I'll tell anybody that's never been one of my favorite songs off this record. It's okay, but it's just—I mean, it's a good opener, but it's very repetitive, and it's just like okay, all right. But by the time Hit the Skids comes in, I mean, it's over. I mean, that record just takes off. Did anybody has anybody else uh, thought that Cha sounds like uh, Macharona? I don't think oh, yeah. I that, but I, yeah, <laughs> I guess it kind of does. Yeah, I, I was reading an uh, interview with Scott recently, or maybe he made a post about it that he was thinking that Cha said the kitty would be the first single when he first played it for for his friend, but I don't think that would have been a good idea at all. I'm I'm really glad they went with all the kids for a single. No, that's not. I mean, the guitar solo alone in that song <laughs> makes it not eligible for a single. It's yeah, like I, super fuzzed out. Like that's an album track. But it's, it's a cool that, album. It's track, that but... drum. 
It's that drum beat, though. I you know. know yeah, you're right. It's the by Sharona drum beat. And you're like, it totally is. That could be a pop song. Yeah. You know, but if, from well, a foundation standpoint. Yeah. Foundational. Yes. But executionally, I did, no. I did want to point out, too, that, um, you know, all the kids are right is like maybe a perfect 90s example of uh, what it looks like to have a label interfering with the creation of the music. And, you know, how sometimes that can be a disaster and sometimes it can end up being for the better. Um, Scott wrote at length in that uh, 25 year retrospective book that they put out um, about just how much processing and like writing and rewriting and, you know, do these lyrics work? Do these not like back and forth with their A&R guy um, about that song and just like how much that song had to actually go through until it ended up the way that it did on the album. Um, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty gnarly read. Yeah. And it's really cool how they, I'm sure you guys, I can't believe you guys are versions to this record. It blows my mind that you've never heard this album, but <laughs> uh, if you paid attention, uh, lead pipe cinch, which is track eight, which segues into cool magnet is actually the original lyrics to all the kids. It's the same. If you listen to the chords, it's essentially all the kids just on an acoustic guitar and the lyrics of the song, which were originally about, essentially what is it about being drunk and pretty much being an alcoholic <laughs> but trying to trying to work up the nerve to call an ex yeah yeah so this it's kind of a depressing song which is i can see why the the you know the guys wanted or the label wanted him to rewrite it but so he essentially took those original lyrics and played it over that acoustic guitar and then led it into cool magnet and then if you listen at the end of cool is it no actually it's, it's actually at the end of uh Laminate Man, if you pay attention, you'll actually hear the riff to Cool Magnet come back. So yeah, there's always, it. Yeah, there's all these little nuances in the record, which are really cool how they do that, you know. I'm not sure if you guys heard that or not. Maybe it's just me, but... <laughs> no, and, and no, I, that's something that I think over time, as you get the chance to spend more and more time, unfortunately, because we, you know, we get a week with a record, that yeah. it only lends itself to X number of spins, and you really just... I think we're more broad strokes and listening for stuff like that. So when there's little interesting nuggets hidden in there, those are the things that kind of reveal themselves over a longer period. So those are some, some of the things that we miss, I think. Yeah. And, and of course, track three lucky is the same as lucky time. It's another, another example where he plays lucky, which is on an electric guitar, but he sings to it. And then it comes back in lucky time at the end, which it's pretty neat how he did that too, but that—that's what makes the record. A, as Jay said earlier in the, in the in the discussion, how it's really an album or a CD, as you want to say, in the, in the '90s. It's just—it's a—it's a well thought out record that uh, they spent a lot of time putting that together, piecing it together, and um, writing the songs together. And um, there's a—if anybody's interested, there's a there's a video up on YouTube that I just posted of uh, the band recording this in, in the uh, studio. And it's it's a it's about a two hour watch. So you really have to be hardcore to kind of sit through this. But I know there's a lot of hardcore listening to this. So if you are interested, uh, just look up, uh, just search local HRTB Roy Thomas Baker. That's the name of the studio they recorded it at. But uh, it's fun listening to the conversations between Scott and Joe about different instrumentation and how they were putting songs together, and uh, you know what song goes where. And they were also discussing a song called uh, "Summer Movies" that was brought up earlier in, in the or I think a, a pa patron mentioned it, right? Yep. So at the time they were thinking about doing that as a bonus track, um, I think was the original idea. But then they ended up scraping it. They ended up not doing anything with it. 
But uh, yeah, it's kind of cool to hear. I mean, there was just a lot of thought going into this record. It wasn't just going in and recording a bunch of songs and putting it out. It was just, you know, it was kind of a behemoth to have to to do this. And they did an incredible job, in my opinion. But you guys already know that. So I already know it's a worthy album. <laughs> well, I oh, want to hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> we got to do two. We're going to do two different things here. First, what we're going to do is we're going to do our worthy album, better EP, decent single. That's for us. And then I have something for you guys specific. So, Jay, do you have any additional thoughts or do you want to go to our rating? Let's let's go. Okay. Where the album, better EP, decent single. Where do you land? Oh, where the album. Yeah. 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 I, I could nitpick it. I think we can go through and say, eh, this song could be better. That song could be, this song's great. This song could be chopped up. But it's not about that. Like I get the, the it's a cohesive idea, which is why I'm saying we're the album. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. I don't mean to talk over you guys, but I think every song serves its purpose. Um, and and for a song like Deep Cut, I don't think it was ever intended to be more than just a two minute, a two minute banger that would just close out the record in lucky time. I, I think it does a really good job at doing that. And uh, I mean, sure, well, maybe, I mean, I guess you could discuss how it could be a different song or whatever but i think it served its purpose you know i agree uh, even though i i don't love the song on its own and i think it's potentially an interesting statement after all the kids are right in terms of uh you know this is an overproduced overthought song and then right after that is you know fuck it here's an album track that we're just gonna do we're just gonna rock out yeah like, not overthink it i agree with you Worthy album. I think this really works well when you just put it on and listen to it all the way straight through. It doesn't need an A side and a B side. It works in the CD format. One of the few sort of concept records that that do from the 90s. So here is my question for Stephen and Dewey. I already know you know, you love the record. I want you to rank this in the discography of Local H Records. Where do you place this, Stephen? Uh, that's that's very easy to answer. It's it's right at the top. Um, Interesting. Okay, it's right at the top, and and that is like everything thereafter. Ranking is 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 very difficult for me to do, uh, to be perfectly honest. But for some reason, um, this one has just always stayed there, and I've always just known it. And I'm not good at picking favorites, but this is one of the few exceptions where. It's I can say bar none. It's my favorite local H album. All right, Dewey. Um, yeah, I feel the same way. But I get this question a lot, you know, from other fans about album rankings because that's they have a lot of records, you know, so right. they come quite a bit. And people are always like, "Oh, well, I feel the songwriting is better on whatever happened to PJ Souls," and I, I get that. And yeah, there's there's songs on there that are written better, um, as Scott matured as a songwriter he i mean it definitely showed through through the records as as they as they continued putting out material but um pack up the cats the reason it's number one to me is because it's just not to sound corny but it holds a special place in my heart at the time when it came out because when i bought that i had that feeling of my favorite band releasing a new record for the first time and listening to it for the first time it just just one of those one of those things i'll never forget so for me it's it's number one simply because of that and i i do think uh, as far as material, it does stack up as their number one record. Now, as far as their other material, I really like um, 
12 Angry Months a lot, and I really like Here Comes a Zoo, which was the follow-up album to this, but for completely different reasons. But yeah, I would still put this at number one for me. Okay. Jay, I think I'm going to start a new segment called Rank It or Tank It. No, Rank It or... I need Stank a, It? Or Do you Yank guys- It. Do you guys have any albums that you remembered when it came out? It was like a special time and it kind of, you know, you kind of rank it higher than you might normally. Because oh, yeah. of that oh definitely. Yeah. I yeah. have this, I have, you know, ba- bands and albums where I'm like, this is the album that I discovered them on. This is the album that I got first. This is the album that I fell in love with. It's not considered their best record, but it is to me. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's so. kind of hype. I, I I think it's I, I, it's an incredible album, and I would get really mad at friends that would, uh, you know, back in the '90s, people would burn mix CDs all the time, and I would get really mad at people for cutting up this record and, and picking out songs because I always thought it had to be listened front to back, and it would really piss me off when somebody would put on "What Can I Tell You" on a mix CD, and it would you would hear it come in from nothing because it wasn't segued from 500,000 and then it would, it would just really it would really upset me I, I think it needs to be listened to all the way through much like Fantastic Planet by Failure it's another record where you can't cut it up it's got to be listened to all the way through you know so yes agreed, agreed. so uh, just to wrap up you had mentioned that they you know scrapped whatever they were doing with Ken Andrews um, they haven't released a new album since 2015 is there anything on the horizon as far as a new record for the band? Cause they've been pretty consistent about putting out records. Yeah. Like the thing with them is uh, there's definitely a new record coming. It's, it's not, they haven't been in studio yet or anything, but they've been getting all these invites to all these tours the past couple of years. They went out with, uh, let me think if I can go through the bands here. They went out with helmet for, they did uh, the States with helmet. They did Europe with helmet. Uh, they did a toadies tour last year. They did an alien ant farm tour in Europe uh, earlier this year. So, and they also did Summerland this year with Everclear. So they've been getting these, these invites uh, for all these, you know, I'm not sure if you want to call them bundle tours or whatever you want to refer to them as, but it's getting them in front of a lot of people, which is important. And they've been taking a lot of those, a lot of those tours. So because of it, they really haven't had time to, to record a new record. But from what I've read, um, that's the plan for, the new year is to buckle down and write and record. So hopefully we'll get something next year. But with this band, I've learned just to be patient because it's been pretty consistently. It's been a four year gap between records with these guys. So I've just learned to be patient and not really uh, demand anything out of them. Just kind of wait, you know, but when it comes, it'll be worth it. It always is. Well, they do, they do lots of really cool things like, uh, you know, they'll put out a covers EP here or there and, and, you know, like they just randomly put out that single um, they're and they're giving it a little 10 inch vinyl treatment. They've all they're always doing something to appease the fans. There's there's never any shortage of uh, right of of stuff to collect when it comes to local H. That's true. They, they think about the fan first, which a lot of bands don't do. So I'm very I'm very uh, when people ask me my favorite band, I'm I'm always very proud to say local H because they, they go above and beyond for the fan. You know, more than more so than most bands, which is uh, really something special because you just don't really see that too often. You know, right. so, you know, it's, it's good to see. But, yeah, they, they've been known to put out a couple live records. They put out a couple covers EPs. They have put out um, just a ton of different stuff 
collectible vinyl, uh, live stuff. Scott doesn't like releasing live stuff, but he still puts it out because he knows the fans want it. So they put out a couple live DVDs. They put out a couple live albums. Um, so yeah, they're all, they're all about doing that. All right, gentlemen, we have, we have, uh, taken this to the, uh, to the hour mark, which usually for reserved for round tables, but we have, uh, talked a lot of local H <laughs> on this particular episode, which, uh, fills the uh, gap that was in our our history of uh, album reviews. So thank you, Stephen, for suggesting this record and thank you, Dewey, for joining us on this discussion. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring something I can be a little more critical of next time. Yes. I promise. I do I do want to uh, I do want to add that uh I'm not sure if anybody's aware of this, but they're uh, finally releasing this thing on vinyl uh in October. So if anybody's interested in that, it'll be up on uh, gnprecords.com. We'll have the orange vinyl, which is limited to 500. And uh, srcvinyl.com will have the red version, which is limited to 1,500. So if you want it, go get it. And uh, they're also doing a tour to do this record front to back starting, I guess, next or starting this week when this is airing. So check their website for dates. There you go. Yeah. And I'm super interested to hear how it sounds on vinyl. Yeah. We talked about Dude. how well it worked on CD. Right. I feel like that was not necessary. I well, think hopefully, hopefully they do a good job remastering it and getting it to vinyl and don't just do a cheap digital conversion. No, no, it got the remaster treatment. Good. It's looking good. Forward. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a nice little package. They just put up the links a couple days ago for the, for the pre-order. So, very exciting. I, I'm excited because it's, it's one of my favorite records. So, you know, getting on a vinyl will be really cool. I'm on a SRC vinyl right now. One of the featured bestsellers, Far, 10 Cans with Strings to You. Hey. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's like, I know that album cover. I've been staring at that for the last month. <laughs> there you go. We need to get a piece of this reissue uh, money, Jay. Figure <laughs> out how to tie our... our, our um, massive uh database of albums into uh leveraging that towards reissuing somehow yeah that'd be something yeah, yeah. it's definitely it's becoming a trend but it's a trend i enjoy because you know back in the 90s a lot of these records were never mastered for vinyl and uh yeah it's, it's kind of cool to see it see it happen now you know it's uh and sometimes it can be a letdown you know, if, record, if it's like a digital transfer and there's no thought and care put into it, but I'm confident that this is going to sound good. They did the same thing with As Good As Dead two years ago, and it sounds tremendous. So I'm sure it'll be much the same with this record. All right. If we only had a Patreon goal to start a record label. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Who wants to donate $100 a month? Uh, <laughs> we don't need $100 a month. We just need a lot more people to give us a dollar. Oh, there you go. Oh. How do we get the United States to each give us a, everyone in the United States to give us a dollar? Uh, I fear the answer to that. If I, well, all right, never mind. I was gonna make a a bad political joke. I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna keep it apolitical on this show and just say uh, thanks for all to all our patrons who chimed in with comments. You can go to patreon.com forward slash dig me out to join us at Patreon. And then of course, if you like what you heard. You can go to iTunes and leave us some positive feedback. Steven, what do you want to plug? What's up with the band? Oh, Hollow Earth, we are slowly but surely making progress on LP3. Um, 
should be starting recording, I would think, before the end of the year, likely in uh, November. But how until you, then, we've just been laying low. How did the shows with Braided Veins go? Um, they were fun. Braided Veins is such a great band. Uh, shout out to Brandon, um, fellow Patreon patron. I feel like that um, should have been called the Dig Me Out Tour. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we were trying to get a Columbus show. Thought maybe I could get you to come out, um, but it didn't pan out. Leave the basement. Yeah, we had we had a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, so you actually you toured with another fan of the show, or? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, Brandon Trammell, who's been on the show a number of times, frequent commenter. He has a band called Braided Veins, and uh, Braided Veins and Hollowworth did some shows together, and it should have been Dig Me Out presents. The Dig Me Out tour featuring <laughs> Dig Me Out bands, Braided Veins, and Hollow Earth, sponsored by Dig Me Out. But uh, we didn't, uh, we weren't on top of that. Our marketing Much department could, fell, that fell through. The kids call that not getting your shit together. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you better scold those damn interns. Too. Yes. All those interns have, have left now that summer is over. And Fired. They've, they've been replaced by new fall interns. I we do send them I do, all back to third grade. Yeah, I do have to say regarding regarding corporate sponsorship for tours, uh, Vans Warp Tour has been the same for like twenty years. That's incredible that they were able to keep their name on there for that long. But uh, I think Warp Tour just finished. I think yeah. last year was the final year. Am I correct on that? Does anybody know? I don't know. This but best I know, this was this was the last one this past year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I thought that was pretty incredible. They were because in this day and age, you see you see name naming rights change all the time. Right. Surprised it was not the Qualcomm uh, weed eater <laughs> right. tour, tour by this point. So yeah, good on Vans to uh, to keep that going. Our, our, our Monster Energy tour. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, the Four Loco tour. Uh, yeah. Do we anything you want to plug? Uh, well, let's see. I already plugged my favorite band. Yeah, you so. did that. Um, no, I'm just a working schmo, you know, right. I really, I, I don't, I don't have Steven's life where I get to go tour, unfortunately, but Climb I do mountains just, and tour with awesome yeah, bands. Yeah. He's got quite the life <laughs> living in San Diego, living it up. Well, I, I, I will quickly mention that I actually met him through seeing local H. We didn't actually talk about this earlier, but, um, I don't remember. Do you remember exactly what show it was that we started talking? It was definitely 2000 to 2002 ish. Yeah. Um, I want to say hard, I want to say hard hat cafe in Toledo. Yeah. I think you might be right. Well, no. Cause I remember, yeah, I think you're right. Cause I remember I noticed you at the crow's nest for the album release for here comes the zoo. Cause you were, yeah, we had already, we had already met at that point. Yeah. So it's some, I mean, that was 16 years ago. So we go back quite a ways from seeing this band. So you, you saw a friend of mine and I bootlegging the show with a high eight camera and that, and then you introduced yourself and you said, I, I record as many of the shows uh, just audio as I can, and and when I can get the video, I like to sync them. Yeah, put them right. put them on put them on VHS, which is a thing that was happening back then. Yeah, that was two thousand two for you, VHS dubbing. Yeah, before wow. well, DVD just started coming into coming into fruition at that time, but we were still dubbing VHS tapes back in the day. So, but yeah, I, Steve and I go back. You were dubbing V's. Dubbing V's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he, uh, when did you move out to California? Was that a couple of years ago? Three or four years? About, th- about three years ago, yeah. Okay, so I don't see him as much anymore, but I used to see him quite a bit. Oh, well, that's nice. Glad we got yeah. you on the show together. Got some history. Yes. All right, gentlemen, thank you both for coming on. 
And uh, that's it for this episode. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com.